Second Peter chapter three verses one through ten. Second Peter chapter three verses one through ten, and you can see that we're soon be done with Second Peter. <clears throat> My intention after Second Peter is to go to the Epistle of James. It's the one book in the New Testament that I've never preached from, and I hope to. So uh, thank the Lord for the opportunity, and we'll move to James uh, in a few weeks. But in the meantime, we still have a few things with which to concern ourselves in the third chapter of Second Peter. I remind you this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, And the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask, Holy Spirit of God, that you would lend us conviction, strengthen, undergird our faith, lead us to conviction over our sins, but lead us into all truth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our context, Peter has been leading the church since chapter 1 into this urgent call to make their calling and election sure. He's concerned that Christian people over the course of their Christian lives will neglect the disciplines of the Christian life that will ultimately lead to a strengthening of our position in the word and in Christ and, of course, He wants to strengthen our faith for the evil day that will soon come. Uh, That day coming, meaning that day when scoffers come into the assembly of God and when we observe men and women in in the world and in the church who scoff at the truth of God's word and who suggest uh, the pursuit uh, of worldly things. He wants us, and he has been teaching this since chapter 1, to rely upon the reliable witness of the Word of God. That Word of God which which contains the testimony of the prophets, as well as the record of of holy men of God carried along by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God, uh, apostles who also are writing the New Testament passages. 
which have been compiled into the New Testament, which we enjoy, but writers in Peter's readers in Peter's day did not. Uh, they received epistles written by apostles uh, and or their their associates. He wants New Testament Christians to know that they need to take the recorded word of the Old and New Testaments, the apostolic witness and testimony of Christ, uh, and that he wants them to hold fast to those things. In other words, how can a Christian in the world keep their way pure and unstained from worldly pursuits? By keeping it according to the word of God, which is what Psalm 119 says. How can a Christian avoid error by holding fast to the word of God? How can a Christian avoid blind spots in our lives or becoming engulfed in the pursuit of temptation and trials that will overwhelm us? Well, by by maintaining our discipline and approach to and listening to the word of God. How can you live the Christian life in such a way that it will be pleasing in God's sight? By by living it according to the word of God. You see the centrality and the importance of the word of God. You cannot live the Christian life if you do not read the Bible. If you're not reading the Bible, you're not doing very successfully in your pursuit of God. I I can assure you. And most likely your life is not well pleasing to him. If we neglect the word, we are at best malformed Christians, misshapen, struggling with things we ought not to struggle and often overcome by things that ought not to overcome us. Chapter two was an interlude, a large section that dealt with false teachers, and Peter did not hold back. He used very strong language to describe these individuals, waterless mists. Uh, uh, animals reserved for destruction even. The character of false prophets and teachers was on full display. And even now in the same chapter, in chapter 3, in which we find ourselves this morning, he speaks of those mockers who will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. We know what these people are like. We understand what unbelievers look like. Even those who hold themselves out to be religious experts. We understand, but maybe we don't understand the controversies that they will affirm. Maybe we don't understand the heresies that they will describe and suggest that we take up. Well, one of the most dangerous of them all is simply this, that the Lord Jesus is not coming again. I can't imagine someone saying the Lord Jesus has already come. He's not coming again. In fact, the world is simply going to go on. Well, someone told me that about two years ago. It blew my mind. You really believe this? Are you really a Christian? It took me aback. But there are scoffers. There are people who come into this church, whether they are unbelievers or Christians who are deeply misguided and in serious, serious error, who deny the timing of the Lord's turn, return. And so Peter wants to give the church and to, to us this morning pastoral counsel counsel for Christians who, who wonder about the timing of the Lord's return. Maybe you are like me. You've been raised since an early age uh, believing that Christ is coming again, perhaps in our lifetime or perhaps at a later time. But one way or the other, the Lord's going to return. And maybe you've wondered like me, well, why hasn't he returned in the course of my lifetime? I live under the expectation of the return of Christ. 
And then I, I remember and I think back and realize that the world has existed for how many years? Perhaps 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 max. God created the world, the appearance of age, and the world is what it is. And time has passed slowly, but rather quickly as I get older. Nonetheless, we look for the return of Christ and we wonder, why does he delay? And Peter is writing with a, with a pastoral understanding of uh, what people will face as people come into the church and say, the Lord Jesus hasn't returned, what do we have to fear? And perhaps there are doubts in the minds of believers. Peter's concern is for strangers and aliens, elect exiles in the world who are told that the sun comes up and the sun goes down and Jesus isn't coming back again. And so he writes to them and he says three different times in the same chapter, four times in this chapter, agape toy. That's a wonderful word. It's You know what agape is. It's a word of love. Agape toy, loved ones. Ones in whom we love the Lord perfectly and well, loved ones, dear friends, beloved. Four times he uses that language here in this chapter. He is speaking to beloved people of God, professing believers in Christ, people who are committed to the tenets of the faith, people who love the word of God, who, who read the word of God, who are working out this salvation with fear and trembling, who are relying upon the testimony of God's word. And he wants to stimulate them to thinking. And that's why he says, I'm going to remind you yet again. And, of course, in chapter 1, he made this clear that his intention is to stimulate them, to stir them up, to prompt them, to encourage them, to provoke them, that they would be thinkers, Christian thinkers, about the events that we observe taking place in the world. And that they be Christian thinkers as it concerns the future of the world and their personal future as it relates to the kingdom of God. You know, there's a lot of foolish thinking in the world. There's a lot of foolish thinking too, I think, at times in the church. People who ought to know the word of God don't know it because they simply neglect it. And or there are those who have an agenda, an intended agenda, and their intention is to confound the established and accepted and well-proven biblical understanding of what to expect and how to live as a Christian in the world. Peter says, look, you need to maintain, remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Now, in that statement, Peter, and what my my intention is today, just, just to to make sure that you know where we're going. My intention is to explain the text uh, largely verse by verse and then to make some brief application at the end. Uh, That's going to be my approach this morning. What he does is he states that what he just did in verse 2 is he, he makes the Old Testament scripture synonymous with the New Testament scripture. In other words, he doesn't put them in opposition to each other, but he joins them together. The Old Testament and the New Testament, the the holy men of God, the the, the prophets who spoke uh, through the counsel of and the inspiration of the word of the Spirit of God, who who God breathing through them the Scriptures, 
He is saying on the same par is the teaching of the apostles from Paul's epistles to the many churches in Galatia and Ephesus and and Colossae, but also Peter's letters to aliens and strangers who are living in Bithynia and in surrounding territories in modern day south and western Turkey. He's saying they say the same things, that they they preach the same themes, they have the same aim and goal as a preparation and an expectation of God's people for his consummation of all things in the provision and the return of the Savior. There's the same goal as a preparation an expectation of God's people for the return of a Savior, a connection with the words of the past, utterances spoken before, and those now being communicated through the apostles at the command of the Holy Spirit. And so the Old Testament is is in comparison, on the same footing as the writings of the apostles. And the New Testament Christians do right, do well to maintain Uh, an understanding of the Word of God and a commitment to the Word of God, whether you're talking about the Old or the New Testament. But there will be scoffers who will come in the last days. And Peter is clarifying the days in which he lives, largely from the time of Christ's ministry and life and death and ascension and until the return of the Lord. And, And what does Peter call these days? He says, these are the last days. These are the last days. Every Old Testament text, every New Testament text that makes reference to the last days is referring to the time exactly as understood in here in Peter's second epistle. From the, from the coming of the Lord and his ascension into heaven and to the second coming of the Lord when he returns with a shout of an archangel in the heavens above and all the world bows, their, bows and bends their knees to him. These are the last days. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. And then in verse 8, he begins to use contemporary language. But, but when this occurs, don't let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. And so he's saying, these are the last days. And in the last days, you will see mockers who will come. And, and, and he says, and you need to be prepared for them. And so what he's doing in his language is he's clarifying these are the last days. Peter had a last day understanding of the days in which he lived. Peter's clarifying that the days in which he lives, these are the last days. Between the ascension and the return of Christ, these are the last days. This is affirmed in Hebrews chapter 1, which quotes Habakkuk. God has, in these last days, spoken to us in his Son. And James 5 talks about the coming of the Lord and, and uses similar language to describe what we understand to be the last days. Well, in the last days, there will, be, there will come those mockers with their mocking following after their own lusts. And this is what they're going to say. There's an arrogance of unbelief, isn't there? People speaking about things of which they don't even know, and that's what Peter said in in 2 Peter chapter 2. He says they, they speak about things of which they're completely ignorant, but there's an arrogance in their unbelief. 
And they say, look, where is the return of Christ? As they think about the world and the timeline of human history from creation until present day of Peter, they say, where is the coming of the Lord? Do you understand that? They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it has from the beginning of the creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of the Lord of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. What are they doing? They're denying the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're denying that the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who forms the church, who has redeemed the church, who has given himself for the church, who loves the church, whose church is his bride, they come into the church and say, we're religious like you, but no deliverer, no savior has come. Either the first, during his period of his ministry, his death, his ascension, his resurrection, or even his second coming, whichever they are referencing, they're saying, where is it? In other words, they're denying that God has made provision for sinners. They're denying that Christ has come into the world. They're denying that Jesus, this human individual who walked on this earth, who was not seemingly walking, nor an apparition, but one who was born of the Virgin Mary, who lived and bred and, and ate and uh, or lived and and uh, was uh, birthed from the womb of the Virgin Mary, who ate food, who walked upon the water, who spoke in whose hands he thrust Thomas's unbelieving fingers. The Lord Jesus, they deny that he has come. They deny the day of the Lord. They deny that Jesus ever was. They deny that Jesus was God's provision of a Redeemer. That he fulfilled Genesis 3.15 and the promise of one who would strike the head and crush the head of Satan and his seed. There's an arrogance in their unbelief. They don't mention at all the birth and life and ministry and death of Christ. They give no significance to this as a cosmic event that has transformed life and death, that the sting of death has been removed. All they do is they go back and they say, early fathers, in other words, men and women who believed in God, who fell asleep, as it were, who died, who are now in the grave. He says, there's been no change from that day to this. It's simply a linear timeline. And it goes on. And they place doubt in the mind of some believers who say, well, it, it seems that the sun rises in the morning and people are still dying in the same way. So why should I live in a spirit of expectation at the return of Jesus Christ? Why should I believe that Christ is coming again? The answer is in what they've left out. Well, at some point, according to God's eternal counsel, and according to the glory of God, he sent forth his son into this world. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who took upon himself a true body and a reasonable soul, lived, and he lived for the sake of his own people. That by his righteousness, 
we would be counted righteous. And he died in our place so that we, our sins would receive, uh, would be paid for in the atoning sacrifice made. That all that our sin cried out for from the judgment of God would be met completely in his offering on the cross of himself. Now that's a cosmic event, folks. That changes everything. That upends everything that these mockers would ever say as they pursue their own lustful intents and desires. As Peter recounts in verse 2, 3. You see, remember who these people are. They're pursuing their own lusts. They are consumed with their lusts. Their sins and their, the, the influence of their sins over them has not been broken. They have not believed in Christ. They're not believers. They're not Christians. They deny the coming of the Lord. Not only that He came, but also that He will come. And yet we have the sure and reliable Word of God, whether in the Old Testament and also in the New, clarifying that God will send and has sent a Savior. That the Son of God has come upon the earth. That He was born of the womb of the Virgin Mary. That He lived and He taught and He breathed and He ate and He rejoiced and He prayed and He worshipped and He praised God and He sent forth His Holy Spirit and He died and He was raised again by His own power and word. He took up His life again, walked forth from the tomb and He met His people And he spoke with them and he was seen by hundreds and hundreds of them. And he ate fish with Peter and the disciples. And he spoke to Mary and Martha doubting. He sent forth the Holy Spirit upon followers of John the Baptist. And they delighted in him. And then with his disciples, he ascended in that moment. And holy angels spoke to the apostles and said, why do you still stand here? In other words, he's not going to come again right now. Go, go and carry out the ministry that he has given to you. And they did. And they lived with a spirit of expectation of Christ returning again. And so must we. By a careful reliance on the word of God, Christians should not be taken by surprise but rather live in a state of expectation. Every New Testament book but four speak directly of the return of the Lord. Jesus said we must watch for the signs of his appearance and of the appearance of false Christs and of false prophets and of a spirit of lawlessness and of the Antichrist who will be revealed one day. And they've overlooked two things. They've not only overlooked the coming of the Lord, but they've overlooked the creation of the world. How was the world created? Well, the world was created by the word of God. God spoke and it came into being. Let there be light. Let there be water and a separation between the water and the firmament. Let there be life. And there was life in this this carefully crafted being made from the dust of the earth. And God breathed his life into them, Adam. Let the 
the birds of the air. Let, let, the, let the air teem with life. Let the waters under the seas teem with life. Let the earth be filled with creatures, both those who, who, who are four-legged and those who are two-legged and those perhaps with more legs, and big tails and little tails. God filled the earth and he filled the heavens and he filled the seas and he blessed his creation. God did all of it by simply speaking. He spoke his word according to his own will. And there's something more that God's word will do. And and we see it already in the story of Noah. What happened is Noah preached in, in his conduct as he built a great ark for the animals that God promised would be needed because he was going to fill the earth with water and break the earth and destroy all that was ungodly. And Noah, in his conduct, as he built that ark, he preached, he preached, he preached, he preached the whole counsel of God and of the coming judgment of God to those imprisoned by their own sins, imprisoned under their own unbelief. And what happened? Well, God spoke. And in his word, the world was destroyed. God judged the earth. They, they, they willingly, they deliberately forget and overlook that God created the world by his word and that God destroyed the world by his word. And God even now is reserving the world as we presently take it in for a day, the timing of his own will for the destruction of the word and the taking home to himself of all those who are in Christ. Now, the form of that fire identified in verse 7 is something we really don't know. It's not necessarily global warming. We don't know what it is. Nuclear holocaust, we don't know. World War Three. we don't know. We only know that, according to what verse 7 says, by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And according to verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be warm, burned up. I'm not necessarily concerned about mankind, our actions and our CO2 bringing the world to an end. I'm not necessarily concerned that somehow we and our use of of fossil fuels and all the rest of it will somehow make this world a useless place in which to live. The reason why is because I understand that the word of God, the very mouth of God, is containing and holding all things reserved for one day the judgment of God of all things. That's how the earth is going to come to an end. That's how the earth will lose its usefulness and its fervor, its flavor, and it will cease to exist. When God, according to his own word, brings this world to an end, and not before. <clears throat> Peter's making an interesting argument here. <clears throat> if you question the second coming of Jesus Christ, didn't God create this world by his word and power? Didn't he destroy the world by his word and power? Didn't he send his son Jesus Christ, the, the son of God, the Lord, into this world to rescue sinners? by his word and power, 
And isn't this present world reserved for fiery judgment by his word and power? If that is the case, then we should not doubt that Christ is coming again. God created the world by his word. God judged the world by his word and destroyed it. God maintains the world by his word and preserves it. And God one day will bring it to an end by his word. Is God not now keeping you and preserving you by his word? And shouldn't you and I recognize our souls are preserved Our faith is undergirded and confirmed inasmuch as we take up the word of God and we store it up in our heart. And if we neglect the word of God, we do so to the neglect of our own soul. It's like deciding, well, I'm going to eat a ridiculous amount of food every single day until I die. And so we eat and we eat and we eat and we never go see the doctor and we decide I have no intention ever of going to see the doctor and of making any changes in my life. And so high blood pressure begins to build up and and cholesterol begins to take over and eventually the person dies. And of course, we're not guilty of filling that person full of all those things that destroy a person's body of butter and sugar and all the rest of the tasty treats that 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 ruin a human's body. But if we do things which are not helpful to our bodies, our bodies will give out and die. Well, your soul will suffer if you neglect the word of God. If you have no interest in reading the Bible, we have to ask whether or not you have any real interest in Jesus Christ. I'm really not interested. I'm really not interested in making the effort to delve deeply into it. And on the appearance of things, it just seems so confusing. Well, if you if you apply yourself, if you read uh, counseling uh, uh, commentaries, if you ask questions of your pastors and leaders and and faithful friends in the church, will you not come to a better understanding of the word of God? Of course you will. All right. So what we need is the word. We need the word of God. Isn't this present world reserved for fiery judgment? Christ is coming again. As strange as the day was when Noah, who has been making the ark, had finished it, had had planed down that last corner, had nailed in that last nail, and it entered finally after all this stream of animals entered into the ark, and he himself went in, and then an unseen hand closed that door, In the same way, a strange day will come. The fire will be kindled in this world. And men will wonder at it. And some will begin to say, we wish we had listened. Perhaps what has been warned is coming true, and surely it will. Never Never seen before, never really contemplated, one day a fire will begin and will not end until all ungodliness and wickedness is consumed and the heavens will melt. But don't forget the mystery of God. 
In the middle of all of it is the mystery of God and of who he is and his purpose in bringing all things to this final consummation. No one knows that hour, but in the end, the one purpose for which God is bringing all things to that final consummation is to glorify his beautiful son. And indeed he will, and it cannot be put off. The mystery of God is simply this, as Peter outlines it. Well, with God, a thousand years is as one day. Think about the last 24 hours, the last 24 hours for us. How quickly did they go? Yesterday morning I awoke, I went and worked out with my son. The day progressed, I studied, I did some work. We met up with uh, uh, with uh, with, uh, with, with uh, our, our daughter last night. Uh, the evening progressed, and then I put my head on the pillow and went to sleep, and now here I am this morning. 24 hours is gone, and it has gone very quickly. Well, in the very quickness of those 24 hours, God uh, transcends those 24 hours, and to him, a thousand years looks like my 24 hours. But conversely as well, a day to him is like a thousand years. So, in other words, God is not in any way bound by time. To him, a thousand years is as nothing. And to him, 24 hours is a great deal of time. God is not like man. He's quoting Psalm 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. People will take that verse and have taken that verse, verse 8, in our present context, and they have said, look, if you take one day and, and you look at each day of the creation and you look at the various days that have passed from one day to the next and you trace the lineages of this son was born to that man and that man was born to this son, etc., etc., and you follow all of those genealogies in the Bible, we can in fact say with relative certainty when Jesus Christ is coming again. False teachers have been doing that for generations. That's not Peter's argument. Peter's argument is not about the timing of God and his return, but Peter is, is speaking about the timelessness of God. He's not talking about the timing of his return. He's talking about the character of the God who is not in any way bound by time. No one knows that hour. Matthew 24, verse 36, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, nor, but only the Father. There's no accurate telegraphing of a single and expected date. The mind of man who is arrogant and foolish enough to think that he might figure it out is dead wrong even before he begins. Only this is true. The Lord is not bound by time. The Lord is not hasty, and he does not needlessly delay. Hebrews 10.37, for yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. The argument of Scripture is that God does not in any way delay his judgment. But we who live, and, and 24 hours seems like a substantial amount of time to us, we are bound in, in the brevity of time on this side of eternity. And so for us, yes, a day is a lot of time. Ten years is a, a lot of time. 
20 years is beyond our comprehension. It's, it's hard to think of where we'll be 20 years from now. And so we wonder, why, why, why are we still waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus? Has the world not become as corrupt as it possibly can? Is the church not under immense pressure and persecution in our world? Shouldn't Christ come again and inaugurate the kingdom of God yet to come? Well, an answer is given to us in verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise. As some count slowness. In other words, if you think God is slow in providing and making, fulfilling his promises for you, the Lord is not slow. The Lord is precisely on time. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why hasn't Christ come? Why hasn't Christ returned yet? Why does God look upon the wickedness of our world and and send forth his Son to to end all things, to bring the, the heavens to a crashing end and the, 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 the planetary bodies to, to melt and for the earth to be destroyed and consumed in fire. Why hasn't God, God done this yet? Why hasn't Christ returned yet? We so long for, we anticipate the return of Jesus. We cry out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Why hasn't he come yet? Because God is patient toward the lost. That's the answer. Because God is patient toward the lost. God's mercy, God waits for all for whom Christ died, who are beloved of God. This is to whom Peter's writing here. He said it four times. Beloved or loved ones or, or very special friends, good friends. He's speaking to Christians. God wants all of you to come to repentance. God wants every believer to come to repentance. When the last sinner has believed in Jesus Christ, the patience of God has been exhausted and the time of God's appointment of judgment has come, then the Lord will come. In the meantime, God's mercy is operative. He is working. He is waiting. He is saving sinners day by day. There are revivals of grace all over the world. There are people streaming into the church from every corner of the globe, perhaps not here in the West, as we are so filled with our own arrogance. And yet still, people do come to faith in Jesus Christ in our world, do they not? Some of us have led people to a profession of faith in Christ even in recent years. Some of us have seen evidences of the word of God and of people who are taking seriously the claims of Christ. We were speaking with someone last night and they were sharing how their friend seems to be coming around to an understanding of of God and of Jesus and seems to fear the Lord and seems to be coming to a position of faith and repentance, perhaps if the Lord is pleased to do it. Is Peter preaching a universalism where he says 
The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all, without distinction, to come to repentance. No, it's not possible, even in our own context. In verse 7, he said, By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. If God wishes for, if God desires, if if God is working for the salvation for every person, if God is, 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 is waiting for every person on the face of the earth to come to repentance and faith, well, he's, he's going to be sadly disappointed because he knows and he has intended to bring about a day of destruction when the ungodly will be destroyed and will be punished in hell. Chapter 2, verse 3, also says similar. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. There are many other biblical texts that speak of the wicked, of their eternal suffering, and of hell and Gehenna. The truth is that not all believe. God is not powerless, but all will come to repentance. Those whom he has decreed should come, will come. If the scoffers and the wicked have rejected the Lord and his mercy, they have refused to come to repentance, they will be condemned in their unbelief. God promises salvation and eternal life to all who would believe, And yet not all men and women believe. Therefore, they are condemned in their unbelief and they will face the wrath of God in the day of judgment. Paul and Peter are in agreement here in verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 You know certainly that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. An unexpected suddenness one has written with no warning. That day is coming. Even Jesus referenced it, and it blows my mind that there are some scholars who say Jesus never referenced his coming, his second coming. Jesus never said that he would come again. Well, Matthew 24, verse 42 and following, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at the time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert. And would him not have allowed his house to be broken into? For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. Are you prepared for the return of the Lord? Are you ready to stand before the face of your Savior? Heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving him, faithful to him, obeying him, delighting yourself in his word, living in a way that is pleasing to him. Are you prepared? Have you repented? Have you believed? This is the call of this passage this morning. Have you believed in Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sins? If you have not believed in Christ, if you refuse to believe in Christ, if you've not repented wholly and completely of your sins, And Christ is not yet your Savior, but God is delayed. Thank God that we are alive and the day has begun and the sun is shining. God has delayed his his coming until you repent of your sins and believe in Christ.
Perhaps you're the last one. One way or the other, the Lord is coming again. Revelation 16 refers to the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Do you believe? Have you repented of your sins? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? No, not just in some loose sort of way. Yeah, I think I believe all of this stuff. But have you with absolute commitment said, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the entire testimony of the Word of God. I don't reserve myself from any of it. I may not understand all of it completely and fully, but I submit to the Word because it is true and the only sure counsel. I have believed in Jesus Christ, His only Son. I know there is no other name under heaven by which I may be saved. And I have repented of my sins because they are evil. I hate them. They are contrary to the laws of God and the character of my Savior. I confess them all to Him. I don't hold back a single thing because He sees it all and He sees into the depths of my life. And in the end, I know a day is coming when all things will be revealed. So better to tell Him now all of the things that I've done and to ask His forgiveness and to repent and turn away from them and to find life in Jesus Christ. The heavens will disappear in a roar. Revelation 6.14, the sky receded like a scroll rolling up. It's in verse 12 too. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning in the elements with melt with intense heat. The heavens, in verse 10, will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Nothing's going to be left except for you. You standing before a holy God. You standing before the judge of judges. You standing before the resplendent, righteous Son of God. Heavens will disappear with a roar. There will be a noise, a noise like we've never heard before. And the, the earth will simply be engulfed in fire. And the heavenly bodies, they too, will melt. And the earth will be broken, ruined, judged, refined through fire. And the new heavens and the new earth will come and descend with the Lord. You see the language that's taking place here. It's what Isaiah 34, 4 says. All the stars of the heavens will be dissolved and the sky rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall. What's happening here? God who created by his word and power is uncreating the world that he has made. Is uncreating the world. The world will be uncreated as the heavenly bodies were created and appeared in the sky and the earth was formed and the waters and the earth were divided so the judgment of God will Unmake by fire what he has made. Everything will be laid bare before the judgment of Christ Jesus. So, dear friends, as Christians this morning, in light of this text, in light of these words to us, go back to the Bible. Go back to the Bible while you still may. Go back to the Bible and readjust your expectations about life. Or perhaps God will cause a famine of the word of God to take place in our land. And maybe even in your home. 
that's one of the particular judgments found in the pages of the Old Testament. When God's people neglect the word of God, God causes there to be a famine of the word of God. People will cry out for it. Where is the word of the Lord? And they will hear nothing because the word of God has been withheld. God, whose word is precious, has taken it to himself, for he will not permit the word to return to him void. And he will not cast pearls before swine. And those who are uninterested in the word of God will not always have the word of God. Go back to the Bible. Readjust your expectations about your life, your priorities. Get away from the doubters, the scoffers, the skeptics, those men and women filled with lust for the world. Let the water of God, the word of God, wash like water over your mind and heart. All history is subject to the predictions and prophecies and commands of every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And the world was created by that word, destroyed by that word, and then sustained by that word. And one day will be judged and destroyed yet again by that word. Mankind cannot live but by the bread, not by bread alone, but by the word of God that proceeds out of his his mouth. The main thrust of the passage here before you this morning in conclusion is this. Don't give up on the Lord. Don't give up on the Lord because of a perceived delay. You're waiting on the Lord for something, perhaps for him to return, or perhaps for him to move and work in your life, or to save your child, or to bring your children to repentance, or for you, God, to change your heart and enable you to come to him in full reliance. Don't give up on the Lord because of a perceived delay or because because we have to wait upon him or we've asked him for specific things in prayer, but he delays. We, we begin to think he's no longer working or active. We think he doesn't take notice of us. Surely he's ignorant of our situation. Or maybe he's angry with us. Maybe he doesn't want good things for me. You know what we're doing? We're we're essentially saying our reasoning is better than God's. And our expectation is more wise than God's decree. But we understand and we know that God is the judge. We judge the Lord by our feeble sense, and yet he alone is judge. He does all things well. His delays are purposeful. All things serve as creation of good in the life of all believers. He's ordered the days of your life by his sovereign decree, and he will carry out for you all that he intends, all that is necessary, all that is good. Doubt him not. Jesus is coming again. Let there be no uncertainty. For anyone who has not believed in Christ or professed faith in Christ, not having yet repented of sin, the delay of Christ's return is for you. God's desire is that you would turn from your sin and be saved. He takes no delight in your destruction. He calls you now to turn from your sins. You've lived thus far believing that that day, day by day, each day will come just like every other and that God delays because he isn't there. Well, he is and he is there and he delays that you may repent and believe in his son. Ezekiel 33, as the last word, as I live, declares the Lord. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. 
Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? Turn back and turn to the Lord. Believe and repent. And you will find his mercy waiting for you. Let's pray.